When he sent me packing down Green River Valley I knew that if you couldn't then No one would have Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. This is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse, armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola. Uh, We've only ever posted episodes on Monday before, but this is a holiday, and we've got maybe the most perfect Valentine's Day guest, Nick Yarata of the incredibly romantic and effectual Colorado band Devachka, um, which you've definitely heard in movies like Little Miss Sunshine and I Love You, Philip Morris, if not Under the Stars at Red Rocks or Levitt Pavilion out here. Uh, Nick and I talk about Devachka's upcoming show with the Boulder Philharmonic which is happening May 6th, um, and his ongoing, very busy career working on music for films and television shows um, in Hollywood. Nick's music is patient, romantic, whimsical, thoughtful. Uh, um, I love how long it takes him to sing a word, and in conversation, he's like that as well. A life needs to be slowed down sometimes too, to savor it. Um, Like a lot of Valentines, Nick was late, and I gave him some shit about that. Um, And like some Valentines, we also had a matchmaker uh, in the form of Nick's mother-in-law, Dora. Uh, She came to one of my band's shows last year and then really got Nick to be on my high stash, and I'm grateful for that. Um, If you're listening, Dora, thank you. And thanks to everyone who's been uh, listening to Mile High Stash these last few months. Um, You can all be my Valentines if you want. Uh, Especially if you're letting a guy who stutters uh, run a fucking podcast. (laughs) We have now a a donate button at milehighstash.com if you want to help keep us going and help me get some sound equipment and engineering help that I need. Um... In the meantime, thank you so much to our very generous sponsor, Rising Tide Tattoo in Boulder. Um, I really need to go down and get a tattoo from Phil at Rising Tide very soon. Don't know why I haven't yet. I actually texted him the other day with some ideas. This episode of Mile High Stash is brought to you in part by Rising Tide Tattoo Emporium. Boulder's premier tattoo shop. Rising Tide is led by the incredible Phil Bartell, who has been tattooing for over 25 years and is inspired by the Japanese tattoo lineage, Tibetan Tonka painting, and Art Nouveau. Book an appointment at Rising Tide with Phil or another of the shop's amazing artists who work closely with each client to make sure every piece is unique and true to their vision. Rising Tide welcomes walk-ins as well as appointments, so stop by today or head to TattooBoulder.com. Hey, how are you? Hey, man. I feel like a total dick. Sorry. (laughs) You're not quite in Axl Rose territory. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I definitely feel like I'm in Axl Rose territory. (laughs) You're a busy guy. Uh, I've had quite a day. (laughs) Don't Um, don't worry about it. Funny story. When I came back home to do the interview, I, uh, I broke my key off in the lock. Oh, shit. Yeah. So like <laughs> two hours and seven hundred dollars later I got in and realized my computer charger was broke. So I really spent that kind of day. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hopefully we can have some laps and and you know. Yeah, no, I'm excited we finally got to do this. Yeah, man. Um so one of the reasons, if not the main reason that I'm sitting down with you is because I'm I'm a friend of um your mother-in-law. Oh, yeah. No Dora. Yeah, so most of these questions were written by her. <laughs> so we'll start with uh what are your in, intentions with, intentions. you know, uh, her daughter? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm sure she knows by now. Yeah. But the best intentions. 
we can start by talking about um, the show that you're doing with the Phil in in May. Uh, how did that come about, and uh, what's it like to work with symphonies on these on these shows or Philharmonics? Uh, well, it's been an amazing part of our last uh, act of the band. Um, you know, we started because uh, we had so many like Boulder connections. Mm-hmm. We started and and uh, Tom was, uh, I think, an alternate for the Boulder Phil. And so we, we befriended all these players and we always recruited them to play on our records. And, and then we just started getting more ambitious with our arrangements. And, uh, and finally it was kind of a perfect storm where the, you know, the Denver or the Colorado symphony started to reach out to, to pop acts. And we were, we were ready to go and we, we recorded a live album and then we got to do like five red rock shows with them. Yeah. So it's, um, it's been kind of a dream come true for us, you know, what kind of rehearsal goes into something like that? Well, you really kind of have to have your your shit wired up front. And basically, because of the symphonies on such a clock, you have pretty much like five minutes of rehearsal mm-hmm. before <laughs> the day of the show. So if something's wrong, um, everything's going to fall apart. Um, so there is basically no rehearsal. Yeah. That part that part's pretty scary. And, uh, there's no, um, you know, you're in a band, you, you nod at your drummer and you, you take an extra eight bars. There's, there's mm-hmm. none of that in right, this right. format. <laughs> yeah. You're constantly counting and, and cueing. Um, but it makes it makes for exciting. And, uh, well, you know, the, the, the feeling of having symphony behind you is like catching a giant wave or something. Mm-hmm. Do you play to a click during that? Um, no, we uh, because we have a drummer. He's our click, and yeah. he, he basically syncs up with the conductor. He must be a fucking good drummer. He's good. I mean, he's, Jesus, he's got a steady clock, and you know the conductor gets on the clock with him, yeah, and leads the orchestra, yeah, with his wrist. How has the makeup of of Devotchka evolved since you started? I'm not a Devotchka nerd in knowing if it's the same violinist from, you know, that very first record or any. Yeah. You know, since the first record we've before, while I was making the first record, I kind of had an open door policy Mm -hmm. and that was the time I was sort of living the Boulder lifestyle, you know, bartering and crashing on friends' couches. Mm. We just had a a great big, um, sort of, uh, brother and sisterhood of players that when if you could make it to the gig or the rehearsal <laughs> then you were in right and um and that's how i honed in the songs for the first album and when i recorded that i found i had tom was with me the whole time and um and after we recorded the record we met Jeannie and sean and they were at the exact same point in their life where they wanted to get in a van and try to make it in a band Mm-hmm. And so we've been together ever since that core, the core four of us. And yeah. of course, we we always try to have extra, extra um, players when we play. Since we've kind of gotten spoiled with the symphony, we can't seem to be satisfied as a four piece. <laughs> yeah. My friend Alice has played trumpet with you. In oh, the past I love Alice. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of my favorite horn players. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the theme of the show is um, five albums that you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. So it's kind of a spin. It's like the desert island thing, but it's not actually like a nice situation. This is bad times. Um, I'd like to intermittently ask you, five albums and so if if you can think of one right now that'd be great yeah i was well since you mentioned you know you told me about this idea um i was just thinking about the like the five albums that you know probably changed the trajectory of my life without Mm -hmm. without me thinking about it and 
and with the whole zombie cabin tie-in, like I can still listen to him front to back mm-hmm. without being bored. I think that's a, a pretty good um, a testament to how much they mean to me. So should we start off with one? Yeah. I guess, and, and you know, these aren't like groundbreaking or anything, but um, I'd say the first one that really rocked my childhood and probably pointed me to where I am at was the Beatles revolver. Mm. And I think a big part of these albums also, they take me back to that time in my life and when I found them and what was going on and you get kind of remnants of those feelings. And there's, I guess I was like a preteen when I first heard that one. And, um, you know, to date myself a little bit, it wasn't, you had to kind of rely on your brothers and your friends your Mm. parents record collections as to what you're exposed to and um and one christmas um my dad was feeling super cool and he got me and my brother revolver and we uh, we had like um you know it was probably a piece of shit but it sounded it was you know one of those stereos with the receiver and the but the record player on top yeah uh and man the sound coming out of that it was a Christmas thing. And I just remember not leaving the house during that whole break and just listening to it front to back. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window. And, and you can still, that I think is they're probably there, you know, for the, the greatest recording band in the world. There's just something about the sequence and the drama mm-hmm. and the uh, the build of that album. It just feels like you're watching a movie. Right. And, and, and I was going to say, like, when I can still remember the first time I heard the Beatles and it just like and I've, I've heard a lot of people say this before. And I was probably at the perfect age. I was probably eight or nine. And, and uh, it just it just like rips through your soul. Yeah. And, and I've heard a lot of people say, and I'm one of them, like that. I want to be in a band. I'm mm. going to be in a band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I hope I've said enough about Revolver. Yeah. Well, I'm not exactly surprised, um, you know, that anybody would say a, a Beatles record is one of their favorite records. Um, however. When I hear you sing, you take as long to say a word as somebody in like an Italian love song or sometimes Frank Sinatra, someone like that. So I almost picture you as a little kid listening um, to music from a Western or or a, um, you know, like I said, in an, an Italian love song. So I, I wanted to ask you, when did you get so romantic? Well, I think maybe that had something to do with my my upbringing as well. Like that was that was my dad's go to was Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and Johnny Cash, and of course, I I came up in a great time where they were they were show, showing you know all the spaghetti westerns on a weekly movie the, um, series called the Four Thirty Movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York, I think anyone who grew up in that area will remember the 430 movie when it's, you know, in the New York weather, it can be really shitty for most of the year. Mm-hmm. And they just gave the greatest cinematic education um, that a boy could ask for. They would have yeah. like, you know, Spaghetti Western Week, and then they would have, they'd take a week and play Ben-Hur, and then they'd play Citizen Kane for over mm-hmm. a week, you know, different parts. And, um, and that's where I really fell in love with with soundtracks, and uh, and especially that spaghetti restaurant, uh, the the Morricone stuff. I remember yeah. making. I used to make cassettes off my TV broadcasts whenever he was on, and uh, I think it did have some sort of subliminal effect on me for sure. He passed away in um, twenty twenty. I th- I think. Uh, yeah, no, I, th- yeah. I think it was even sooner. Yeah, it was 2021, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was 
yeah he he was pretty old and still doing concerts right right up until the day he died so thank uh and what an influence he's had on everybody yeah and anyone who's ever seen metallica in concert has heard one of his songs because um the ecstasy of gold of gold has been metallica's entrance music since like I don't, I don't know, 1984 or something, every oh, single show that they play. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I've never got to see Metallica, but that's just shows. Yeah. How it's, yeah, it's everywhere. Did you know, I mean, you said you were recording soundtrack music when you were a kid, but did you have an inkling of, I'd like to put music in movies back then? Uh, I didn't. I didn't know I could ever do that. I just knew that there was something magical about it. And I was writing soundtracks to my own life at that point. Um, yeah. I never realized that it would, I'd be able to put it to use, but I was, I was always drawn to the process and, and I, and um, yeah, there was just something about the, the uh the marriage of film and music that i i couldn't get away from i i just loved it and i hid i hid in it yeah in my you know away from my childhood troubles now it seems like you're kind of leading a double life in a way because in colorado people know you as the guy from Dvachka and maybe in Los Angeles, it, it's more, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I feel like you're in this camp with Johnny Greenwood and Trent Reznor as of somebody who works on scoring films and, and maybe some of the world that you move in might not even know that you're in a band, if that makes yeah. any sense. It is true. It is a double life. And, uh, yeah, a lot, um, a lot of times I do get hired for a film score and I'll have to just sort of leave hints and trail of breadcrumbs that I, mm -hmm. I actually have a band I've been working on for 20 years and we have some good stuff and <laughs> it's not <laughs> bad. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not mm -hmm. always, uh, it's not always known that you're in a, it is like a double life. You're right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just don't care. <laughs> right. You know, mm. they don't care about your background. When I moved to Boulder in 2008, um, it seemed like Davachka was a local band, you know, which you were, but also just that you had kind of always been here. It was like a part of this place. And so I actually didn't realize until recently that you're not from Colorado. I, I thought that you were as much Colorado as, say, Slim Cessna, you know, somebody who's like a part of the landscape here so I, I wanted to know how did you end up in Colorado and also is there any Colorado that you kind of take with you uh yeah I think it's a big part of who I am and uh and the rest of the band was well I get well two of our band members did grow up here but not really in in Boulder or Denver mm -hmm. sort of the outskirts um but me and the drummer Sean we were I think there's a big well, you probably went through the same thing if you're a transplant. There's mm. some kind there is a draw. Yeah. Especially I grew up on the East Coast. So it it seemed like a a fantasy land to me. Right. And uh, and it was. I remember the first time I came to Boulder, um Jane's Addiction was playing at the uh on campus. I got on their first album tour. I got to see that show, which also changed my life. Um, Nothing shocking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was a huge fan. I'd never seen a band like that. And their performance that night was, was absolutely unforgettable. And, um, and then it was the same time the mall crawl was still going on, like the yeah. same weekend. And, uh, and I met all these super cool people. And I thought like, wow, Boulder is, is the coolest place I've ever been. <laughs> so I got that, um, I got that curse that night. What's the, the curse? Nyawat's curse. 
Nyawas curse got mm-hmm. a hold of me that night and I came back and and um yeah and, and you know we couldn't we couldn't get arrested for years we couldn't get a, a gig anywhere for <laughs> for the longest time so it's it's funny that you came when we were actually sort of established yeah um, but took took a lot of work and it's 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 nice to hear that you know we're sort of a part of the landscape i was getting my teeth cleaned yesterday in boulder and while they were blasting away there was the vodka came on in the, in the dentist office and i thought wow. and i thought oh i'm gonna be interviewing nick tomorrow this is so this is so fucking funny but like right. you know <laughs> your first um the first moment of your first album it's so whimsical and I wondered, is that something that's stayed with you? Um, or do you feel a little bit more, more serious these days? Um, that's always been my overriding philosophy, for sure. <laughs> um, I think you get sort of, as, as a musician, I always get sort of drawn into different rabbit holes. So I don't know, maybe sometimes you lose that when you're going for a certain, a certain uh, sound or a certain style, but, um, but that was always the, the, um, yeah, I felt like when I was making that record, I felt like complete, uh, I felt like I was shouting into the void. Hmm. I felt like no one's, no one's probably gonna, ever going to hear this. Um, but this is it. This is my moment. You know, I've been, you know how they say that, you know, you spend your whole life writing your first record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was, that was, um, you know, a whole lifetime of ambition. Um, and, and I certainly didn't, you know, I, I, uh, I'm glad that you, you think it sounds whimsical because that is a good way to describe it. I, I don't think it was a conscious thing, but, um, mm-hmm. it was, um, it was certainly the time when I didn't have to compromise to anything except myself, my mm-hmm. own standards. And, uh, and I felt like it was my one and only chance to, to say what I had to say at that point. The, um, the song Devajka starts with this, I don't know if you call it a fiddle or you can call it a violin. Some people are very particular about that, but it starts with yeah, this beautiful. I would, I would call that a violin. Violin. That's, and that's Tom, Tom's genius. Yeah, it starts out with this absolutely genius, you know, violin solo that's something out of Fiddler on the Roof. And then all of a sudden, it's just fun. And it, it sounds like something Eugene from of Gogo Bordello would, would really enjoy. And... um um, I was wondering if if any of that sort of fun element of it came from working with burlesque dancers and and that experience of, I mean, it's romantic and it's cinematic, but it's also just like a party. Yeah, I think that was a big, I mean, that was one of the things I was going for was sort of a, um, I just have these memories from childhood backyard parties with with old Italian dudes playing accordion and and that was the kind of uh weird childhood I had, but I felt like that was in my soul. And at and at the time, like I um when you're a musician, it's t- it takes you a while to find your voice. And mm. I think sometimes I know it happened to me, you try to be something you're not for a long time. Mm. And you wonder why you're unhappy. And um and so I, I pushed that all aside I said I just want you know <clears throat> I want this to be me and come from me and not and not be a and be a natural sort of process and um and and I I always wanted to capture that kind of a feeling on the record and and um so that that's that's where that that song came from and as far as the wrestling thing, that kind of because we were able to lay down that vibe, that's what got the burlesque 
dancers interested in us. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're sort of on similar trajectory. Yeah. So we fit perfectly with that world when, when they needed a band. So <laughs> how do you take all of what you're describing now and sort of transpose that into scoring a film? Well, it's a little different because you have to, you know, that you're, you, it's not as easy to, to um, put your own stamp on it mm-hmm. as it is with, a, with an album. You know what I mean? But of yeah. course it always comes out because it's who you are and, and it's going to come out in your music. Um, but I, I definitely, I just try to, to, um, to hone in on what comes naturally and not force it. What, but notes are floating around in there that I can grab. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If it's forced, it's gonna it's gonna sound forced. You know? Right. Before we get too kind of off the rails, maybe I can get your your album number two and three. Shit, I guess I did leave kind of a long list, but I do remember another just great period of my life that that also made me pick up the guitar and actually teach myself a couple of licks. Um, Cause I was a trumpet player at that point. And, mm. uh, and I knew I loved music and, um, and you know, my, my grandfather was a great horn player and everybody had these hopes for me to be a great horn player. And I, I, I couldn't bear to tell my family I hated it. <laughs> I hated the trumpet at the time. And um and my brother gave me his copy of um High Tides and Green Grass. It's a Rolling Stones record. And uh it's like their it's it's like a greatest hits compilation, okay. but it's but they'd only been a band for like three years when they put right. it off. Right. And they had like they already had like 20 hits. Mm. And um it has this like beautiful uh insert with these uh just gorgeous photos of the stones recording their album and mm-hmm. like you know those dreamy there's like these dreamy band shots of them in the english countryside mm-hmm. and, and then it's got you know the first 20 rolling stones hits that yeah. are just mind-bogglingly good the lyrics just like freaking ripped a hole in me and and I just thought the guitar playing was so cool and the, just the swagger, the swagger of it all and the sound, yeah. that early stone sound was just, there's something about it. that whole era of recording they and they it just sounded like they were just pushing all the needles to the max and right but yet getting these beautiful three minute you know beautiful symphonies so i listened to that record over and over again for like a year and uh and it gave me the courage to dig the this old guitar we had out of the attic and figure out how to tune it and figure out how to play satisfaction mm-hmm. and uh and and I did a little recital for my dad and and he was so impressed that he agreed to give me the $10 a week. I would need to take guitar lessons. Wow. That's a <laughs> so, great story. So I definitely owe a lot to that album. People don't talk enough about Brian Jones. I don't think so. I don't think. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, you know, I knew that was complete opposite of him, but I just thought he was the coolest looking guy and, and, and yeah, and what he brought to the band was amazing. And then album number three, if you could. Um, let me let me think about number three for a second. We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me about the movie that you're working on right now, or is is that strictly verboten? Yeah, I could talk about it. It's I'm actually working on a couple of things. That's why okay. I'm a little frazzled. Yeah. Um, it's nothing like that exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I just love the process. And so it's exciting to be a part of it. And, uh, yeah. And I think they're going to be good movies in the end. And the terrible thing about this one movie I'm working on right now is it doesn't have a title mm. right now. 
which I never realized till I got into this world that sometimes they don't come up with a title till like a week before right, right, right. it gets advertised. <laughs> so this well, movie doesn't have a title. So it's kind of a kind of a already a terrible story. <laughs> <laughs> and this reminds me too, I was I was recently interviewing of Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, and he was talking about how in the late stages of working on La Bamba, he was like, this isn't a very good movie. Like this, no one's gonna, no one's gonna watch this. It's kind of a mess, you know. And yeah. then all of a, all of a sudden, he saw it in the theater with the music and everything, and and it was huge. It was a really mm -hmm. important film. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. We um, we we had a similar reaction to Little Miss Sunshine because yeah. you don't realize, and we we had to receive. Uh, you know, when you're scoring, you get very early cuts and. Mm -hmm the sound is off and you know, the, the performance might not be the performance that makes it into the film. And, uh, mm -hmm. and we were, we were thinking like, Oh God, this is kind of a mess. <laughs> but then as the process continued, we were like, oh, okay, these guys know what they're doing and people are going to like this. And thankfully yeah. they did. Yeah. Well, I'm really interested in your process more than anything. And and so it's it's exciting to me that I'm talking with you while you're working on something, and I want to know like what ex what exactly happens. I mean, I, I think a lot of people assume that whoever scores a film just gets a completed copy of the film with no with no music in it, and that's not really how it works, right? No, it's not. And I've been, we've been working on this one since August, and uh, we started in August, and and. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on the, the director and the film, you know, a great deal of editing has to be done. So the movie that we started on this fall, I wrote a bunch of music for, and um, and then you have to turn it into the, the studio and let them watch it, and then they give you notes. And mm -hmm. so they had a lot of notes on this one, so we had to completely re-edit the entire film, and they did a brilliant job. And... Um, and part of the process is last night we all just went to a theater in, in Burbank and watched it with an audience hmm. of, of strangers to see how they would react to it. And, uh, and that's always pretty telling. And, and, um, and this one was really good. They really, there was a lot of, um, it's a comedy. Hmm. There was a lot with a, you know, um, it's a comedy about two sisters. Um, and, uh, and I could, I could feel the audience connecting with the sisters and rooting for them by the end of the movie, and mm -hmm. they like were laughing in all the right places. And um, so now we have to go back and and rewrite all the music. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like you're saying, they don't give you a blank um, copy of the movie. They put, um, uh, you know, sometimes they'll use if they're working with me, they'll use some of my older scores and put them in there as a placeholder. Oh wow somebody really good as a placeholder yeah um to cut it together and then and then you get the the uh the downside is the composer is usually the last guy to get the film and everybody takes their time on the front end and mm -hmm. and now i have you know just a few short weeks to pull it all together <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's not your first rodeo so yeah um but it's always, it's always a challenge because, and another thing is I, when I first got into it, I figured, Oh, I would, I'd get the film and I'd sit down at a piano with a candelabra and I would create a score and I'd be like, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's not that easy because um, you, uh, it has to get by dozens and dozens of people have to like it yeah. <laughs> before it gets into the film. And, you know, music can be very subjective. One person could love it and then another person could think it's garbage. Have you had an experience where you were really happy with the music that you wrote for a film and didn't like the film? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you obviously can't say which, which film, but. <laughs> <laughs> no. And that's the other kind of, and other composers will tell you this, that because you get brought onto a project before, way before it's finished, just like Steve Berlin was saying. Mm -hmm. And you're just hoping that 
you're everyone is trusting each other that we're going to make this thing great and and there's no telling where it could go off the rails and and i've learned just to appreciate so much uh, a movie that's good because they're very rare and mm -hmm. you know few and far between and because there's so many pitfalls um and um so if you can pull together a movie that people like it's an incredible um achievement so on that with that in mind there's many films that you're working on it'll just be kind of like meh mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as the film goes but i've i've of course always give 150 percent and want the music to be the best that it could be so yeah so um i'm usually i usually like all the music even though the film might not be that good so uh two more albums if you could all right i was thinking of uh another big turn in my life when I heard it was in the in the 90s when and I remember the musical landscape was was pretty bad um, yeah. I don't know if you remember those days but it was like, like the days of Bush and Stone Temple Pilots Bush and Limp Biscuit and mm -hmm. all that kind of shit and it's like and it, and it seemed like all my friends bands and bands I was playing with that were all kind of trying to be that hard and aggressive mm -hmm. and everything and, and someone gave me um the uh the album The Black Rider by Tom Waits. Oh yeah yeah and uh that thing plays like a movie as well. Colorado Mushrooms is a Brighton-based farm-to-chef operation that was founded in 2019 by two friends who have quickly found a home for their exquisitely tasty mushrooms at beloved Colorado restaurants all along the Front Range. More than half of the mushrooms in the United States come from Pennsylvania and can be weeks old before they reach your plate, but Colorado Mushrooms are often served same-day fresh. Ask your favorite restaurants if they serve Colorado Mushrooms, which include Blue Oyster, Lion's Mane, Black King, Pio Pinos, and more. Get in touch at coloradomushroomsllc.com or find Colorado Mushrooms on Facebook and Instagram. I'd never heard Tom Waits before. I remembered him from the piano I'd been drinking, <laughs> but I missed all the, the great shorts for that whole slew of albums he did as rain dogs um, yeah rain dogs and mm. swordfish trombone and all that stuff um and i heard that and it completely changed my perspective on music and art and lyrics and and of course i went back and devoured everything he did and and i think that sort of had an effect on me um like you were saying i'm so happy you said that about my first album because i was such a tom waits Dave Otain and I I didn't hear him say it until later, but I, I kind of got it from him. He said he's I heard a quote from him just way after I made the album, but he said, um, mind your own uniqueness. Mm. And uh he he'd gotten through to me through his music to do that, but then to hear that that is actually his philosophy. And I think that's that's kind of what I was trying to say when you asked me that question earlier. Yeah. Is it's in there that you're gonna find the good stuff and you gotta go mining for it. And and he actually said that. And I just think uh yeah, it kind of brings it all full circle. And and he kind of he give he shows you um uh what it's like to to be completely free as an artist and and go down your own path and and how beautiful it can be and how un, unlikely it is when you think about it, his voice and right and his his lyrics but yet they just cut right he's, he's almost like um uh i feel like he's kind of like charles bukowski of music he was very influenced by charles bukowski actually yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I know they grew up around the same time in LA. I remember yeah. him saying that he he read 
I guess Bukowski's to have a col- column mm-hmm. in one of the Indian newspapers that he's to read. So it makes makes notes sense. of a dirty old man is what that that, that column was yes, called. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um uh that that makes perfect sense. But yeah, he's it doesn't matter the voice you're using, it you know, you can still get to that place of beauty, I guess. <laughs> it's ironic too, because even if you're Tom Waits, you can get stuck and it wasn't until he left Los Angeles in about 1980 and said, I'm stuck in this kind of lounge yeah. <laughs> lounge singer act that he made swordfish, trombones and rain dogs and all that and went off the deep end and put everything on the line. The record company was like, what is this? What is, right. yeah. what is this and music? He said, uh, and he said it did change when he started producing his own records so mm-hmm. it, it was him it wasn't because and especially during that time it was very regimented you had to have a producer you had to mm-hmm. go to a certain studio and you had to have a single and, and he somehow wormed his way out of that to the benefit of all of us you know have you ever felt stuck oh man it's a daily a daily battle for sure <laughs> have you ever had someone say to you you know whether it's at a record company or or even someone working on a film well thanks for making this music but it doesn't sound like you yeah i have and uh and that is a conundrum i have had that happen a lot and then conversely it'll sound too much like me <laughs> it'd be too weird for the film um, right but and it and it, you do like when you write this much music for films and stuff, you do it is easy to lose lose where you are. Mm-hmm. So then sometimes, you know, I could be writing for weeks and weeks and and it it won't sound like me because it's not me. You know what I mean? It's not coming from the same place. Right. So yeah. it is it, I think it's good to have people that can ground you that way and remind you that. That, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we hired you for a reason. Hmm. It's amazing that there could be a situation like with Neil Young, you know, he was sued by the record company for making an album that didn't, didn't sound like Neil Young. And he said, well, this is me and I made it. I came up with it. Yeah. So how can you say it doesn't sound like me? Yeah, well, that makes me feel better because I think you could, it, you, you're always changing as a person. And hopefully for the body and your your mental focus so and uh and it's hard as you know as an artist because you want to keep changing you want to do new stuff all the time mm-hmm. and sometimes people just want to hear you play the hits you know <laughs> do you have um a debochka studio album in the works because i think it's been five it's been five years it's only been four years. Only four. <laughs> I won't give you too I much. Do. I wrote. I I wrote the whole thing during the pandemic. Um, I've just been so. I'm. I. Uh, I'm really terrible about this, and I. I. When it comes to recording my own songs, I get just for. I just. I get a little bit precious about it, and I just haven't found the right environment and, and place to do it yet, and. And uh, um, that is another curse of of the Hollywood um, uh, treadmill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, you just keep getting pulled away from the projects you really want to work on. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it is written. That's good to know. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first step is having the songs. Yeah. And that's usually the big hurdle. Right. Um, I, I do. Um, one of my biggest problems is I will get stuck on on like one line of a song, so that song will not get finished for years and years and years. And, and it's been a big. Uh, it's been a big problem, <laughs> <laughs> as far as productivity goes. And well, the end result will be better, though. You, you know, I I was, I forget who I was talking with about the difference between Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and kind of the the famous conversation that they had where I'm, I mean, it's 
mythical, but I think they sat down together and 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 Leonard Cohen played Hallelujah for for Dylan. Dylan played um, I don't I don't know something he was writing at the time, and he and he said to Leonard Cohen, "That's a good song. How long did it take you?" And he said, "I don't know, twelve years or something like that." And 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 Leonard Cohen said, "How long did that take you?" And he goes, "I don't know, fifteen minutes. I just kind of I just kind of like scrawled it down." Oh, that makes me feel better. <laughs> Hopefully um, not 12 years. Yeah. That ties into another one of my, my favorite albums. Um, I I heard the Jeff Buckley version. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I guess that was Grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I I got the album because I was playing in, in a really loud rock band and we were we were booked to play at um, the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, yeah. New Jersey, mm-hmm. um, and it was uh, it was a weird show because it was like the sun hadn't gone down yet, and um, and we and I don't know if you've ever been to the Stone Pony. No, it's just <laughs> famous because of Springsteen. I I know of it. Yeah, yeah but it's it's super small. It's like right. the size of the Lion's Lair, mm-hmm. and. Uh, just a bar and a tiny stage. And um, and we got there and we knew something was was up because um there was like 10 people there and two of them were John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. Mm. They were sitting there and then um uh I met this wafy kid backstage and he walks up on stage and uh and he sings couple of really good songs and then he sang hallelujah and it was jeff buckley wow before he his album came out he was doing a couple of gigs around to try to get his his show together and uh and afterwards at the i had a drink with him and uh and i was like man i was really blown away by your song hallelujah because i'd never heard of leonard Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh so he wrote down all these Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen albums that I had to go hear and, you know, made me feel kind of stupid, but um, <laughs> it was just one of those great moments that I actually, and it really was, um, it was a magical experience to see. It was just him and his Telecaster. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was just one of those right place at the right time. I got yeah. to see a fleeting genius. That's incredible. Before he, got, before he got famous. And of course, when his album came out, I got it the first day and, mm-hmm. and listened to every song. I think like um, it just kind of, it, as far as like the, the musical twists and turns that just made me realize that. And he was actually, um, he started out as a guitar shredder. He went to Berkeley and wanted to be a lead guitarist like myself and realized that he, he could say more with his voice and with lyrics. And, uh, and I definitely got that when I heard, when I heard him and I was like, why am I wasting time practicing these Mm -hmm. scales and trying to come up with amazing riffs when when you can say it all even if your voice isn't that great you can can do a lot more as a as a singer so that's when i became a singer and there's only one richie sambora anyway you can't you you know you can't (laughs) (laughs) what did you think of of the new yorkers cartoon of you when you saw oh i I loved it yeah (laughs) they got the eyebrows right um well, and I've been, you know, I had that magazine around my house my whole life, and that right. artist is—I forget who the name of the name of that artist. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty special to be drawn by him. So yeah, I was <laughs> I was pretty thrilled. What a cool thing to have, you know, um, your little feature um, in in that iconic magazine be about you playing theremin too. I mean, yeah. The talk of the town. Yeah. 
pretty good company um and they and the guy was so cool he took me upstate from new york city to play one of the original theremins built by by leo yeah the state where he had built this theremin into the stage for this rich lady and they had since opened up the estate as sort of a um a landmark that mm-hmm. the public can go and enjoy, but they never let anybody play the theremin and they let me play the theremin. That's fantastic. It's pretty amazing. It's it's definitely something where I've seen punk bands. Um I was in one in high school in Pittsburgh actually that had a theremin as just like a isn't this thing wild? And at some point <laughs> in the in the show you make a sound and everyone goes, Oh my God, what is that? But right. what was it? in you that inspired you to say well no i'm going to learn how to actually play this thing um well i'd always been fascinated by them i i'd heard that um bernard herman who's one of my favorite composers um i'd heard that he was a theremin player mm-hmm. and i didn't realize that um i went back and watched uh is it uh the day the earth stood still right um and the theremin's all over that mm-hmm. and uh and i was fascinated like what is this thing and it was at the um the dawn of the internet and uh you could buy kits on the internet so i i started buying these little theremin kits that you could put together and and make your own theremin and uh and i was just determined to to get a good sound out of it i just kept building and building them and then thankfully um Robert Moog released the professional version that because mm-hmm. I, I had a homemade theremin for the first 10 years of Tavashka. Wow, I didn't and, know that. <laughs> yeah, and it was um it sounded pretty good, but it would it would break all the time, right? In right. traditional moments. <laughs> you know, and there's nothing more embarrassing than going up to the theremin on stage and having it not make any sound. <laughs> it's like the worst fail ever. And that happened to me quite a few times. It still does, actually. It's a very finicky instrument. Yeah, yeah. What do you um, have going on in Colorado the rest of the year? Good question. Well, we we just played our New Year's oh, show. And that at was, the Bluebird? Uh, yeah. How was that? That was, that was pretty phenomenal, actually. I mean, I love that place. And mm-hmm. to have it, um, you know, full of people... Um, and everyone's in such a good mood at that time of year. Yeah. And it was festive and, and uh, you know, everybody seemed to know the songs and, and, uh, and it, it, that place is, is the best. And, and we, you know, I've had so many, that was one of the first, they used to let anybody play there back when we started. Yeah. So they let us play there and like, you know, five of our friends would show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this big, beautiful theater. Um, so it's it's nice to have an actual a real show there. Who do you see um, as your Colorado kind of peers? You know, because you and Nate and Greg and and maybe Slim, you know, all have in common. You know that you started out like maybe literally busking, and and now your household names. Yeah, that's a good that's a good group. I mean, uh, when when we were first starting out. Um, uh, 16 horsepower yeah was playing all over the world and they were just killing it um they kind of blew me away i i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far to say as their peers but they were sort of a they were a touchstone to us for mm-hmm. sure and the, and i love the fact that they had this original totally original take on everything and they were able to to, to break through and uh and actually, I remember because um, we opened up for them a couple of times, and uh, Bob, their producer, produced a couple of songs for us. And just with that um, that connection, uh, it seemed like people people were drawn to us, just knowing that we were loosely connected to them or from the same town. So we definitely owe them for for some fans. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, that's what slim was saying when i interviewed yeah. slim you know he was saying that the first time they went to europe 
they didn't have to do yeah, any, any marketing at all because people knew that they were a part of the 16 horsepower family tree. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. That was, that was cool. And and I always looked up to, we definitely weren't on the same level as Slim either. When we were starting, we, you know, we'd beg him to open up when we could. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was always just blown away by his performance and his, his lyrics. I was that, that it's definitely something Colorado can be proud of. Yeah. And that's the band and, and like you're saying, Nate and, and Gregory, mm-hmm. um, Munley, we've been friends with Munley for, since the beginning. Yeah. Um, we used to back him up before we got to Vodka going. I've known, you know, Ted Thacker. Yeah. Was, well, uh, Ted is the man. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this. Um, did you ever get to see Baldo Rex? That was before my time. Um, um, but I've seen yeah. videos and it's it's almost like Fishbone. It's like, you know, the kind of, of band that by the time the very first song is over, my impression is that all the mic stands would be knocked down on the yeah. stage. It was incredible. And I, I, that was another reason why I thought I saw Boulder Rex on one of my first nights out in Boulder at Tulagi's. Yeah. Remember that? That's before my great, time too. Yeah. Great place to see a band. And, uh, and yeah, they just blew me away with their lyrics and their showmanship and their drummer, John was huge, hilarious guy. And he played naked. <laughs> and i don't know if, and if you can still get a hold of their album it's it's really a classic um when was when was the last time you cried like a silly boy <laughs> oh man probably a week ago a week ago <laughs> <laughs> one last album i was thinking about uh especially for the zombie apocalypse this is a good one uh 69 love songs by the magnetic fields oh yeah 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 um this one's great because it's i think three or four sides it's mm-hmm. actually 69 songs right and uh that album also came out at the perfect time uh it was around the time when i was making that first album and uh and it just sort of confirmed my notion that it's not really the production and the the expensive recording studios. Um, it's really about the lyrics and the melody and and also um I've always kind of been in love with found found sounds and right and and homemade homemade studios and junkyard drums and uh and it seemed like they really embraced that to a masterful level and and you just have 69 songs and every one of them will blow you away. And you can I still can listen to that album over and over again. You are a splendid butterfly. It is your wings that make you beautiful. And I could make you fly away. And in a turn of happy events, as much as we we all, when we first started touring, you know, all we had was a CD player, so we listened to that album over and over again. And uh, and as the years went by, they actually contacted us and took us on tour with them. No shit. Yeah. Wow. It's it's amazing when you know, artistic genius can come through. You know, no matter how lo-fi it is because you yeah you can spend a million a million dollars on an album and then maybe listen to daniel johnston playing something he recorded in his sister's garage or whatever and say oh god i'm never going to make something that good right you know? yeah right for sure yeah and um i think sometimes i've, I've had this happen where you overproduce a song right. or an idea um, I record it too many times. I find that always, um, it's always the first take is always the best. Mm. And, and always the first version is usually the best. 
you just got to trust where that's coming from. Well, thank you for uh, talking with me. And I'm excited to hear this Devashka album when it comes out in 12 years, you know, something like that. But... <laughs> it, won't, it won't be that long. I know I've <laughs> said that before. But yeah, no, thanks. It's been great talking and reliving the past. I hope I uh, my ideas came through. Thank you so much. And I hope to see the um, Philharmonic show. And hopefully you're doing a show maybe at Levitt sometime in the summer. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did one of those after the pandemic. It was yeah. one of the greatest nights of our lives. I was there with my kid and Ted was there with his oh, kid. Yeah. Yeah, there was, um, I think the whole, it felt like it was the first weekend everybody got out of the house. Yeah. It? Yeah. I feel like everyone was drinking at that level as well. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you to Dora for um, connecting us too. Yes. Thanks, Dora. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, man, for your patience and keep up the good work. That was Nick Urata of Devotka, which will be playing with the Boulder Philharmonic on May 6th. I'm excited about that and hopefully also another summer or fall night of Devotka around here this year. Um, thanks for listening to Mile High Stash and thanks to the spectacular Mushroom Makers, Colorado Mushrooms, LLC, uh, for sponsoring this episode, this special Valentine's Day episode. See you next Monday, and um, I'll leave you with probably the best Valentine's Day question possible. Remember when I moved in you, and the holy dove was moving too, and every breath we drew was hallelujah? I hope everyone listening remembers that feeling and feels it again. Living in a dream world Whoa. Even though I know This must seem real now Everything will fall I wanna go back to my